Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in and turning on this week to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. And of course, I am virtually here with my bestie and partner in crime. Hi, folks. It's Dr. Shiloh. Welcome back. I I wonder when I was thinking, when will we be in the same room together to record? Or will we ever? Will we just keep doing this? Oh, I don't want to. I hope not. I know. I I mean, like, because it was a blast. I mean, I think we've mentioned, we've kind of hinted that we're like in a, we're sort of surreptitiously recording in one of our respective workplaces. We won't say where, but it's super cool to know that like, while we're right in the middle of what we do and the agencies that do what we do and we're recording this. And I have, we did have permission. I had permission from the highest right. um, rank in my um, department. So yeah, I, yeah actually, I mean, I miss it too. I mean, I thank God for too. Zoom because of being able to look at your face. And I mean, it really, I guess this is really like, I know this term has been used too much, but it really is a new normal. Yeah, it is. And um I'm so glad that we have this too, because there are a couple times we just did it without any sort of visual and it was really hard for you and I. Yeah. I don't know. There's something about there, as we know, I mean, there's so much to communication and when you're talking about nonverbals and um, this, it's you and I talking to each other. I mean, yes, we always have in the back of our minds, there's an audience listening, but really it's, it feels even intimate like this, I think. It does. And I think it, it speaks to something bigger that everyone is struggling with or or m- most people that are being responsible are struggling with in the world today is that, you know, not being able to to get together and hang out. And you and I spend time at each other's houses and, you know, would go to lunch together and you'd, you'd be in a chair right next to me at my desk while we were talking about cases yeah. or talking about upcoming projects. and. For all of that to be so different for almost a year now, it's really weird. It really, really is. Yes, but yay, we get to continue this just yeah. fine, not missing a beat. Yeah, we get to do it. So um, circling back, as someone pointed out on social media that I say a lot, so I'm going to circling back, uh, we came at prepping this week's episode because we're right here thoroughly, I mean, all the way into fall and autumn and whatever that means to Americans and the rest of the world, wherever, whatever part of the world or the U.S. you're in, you know, whether you're in Southern California where it's sunny and 70 or Manhattan where it's 40 and cloudy. Right. You know, we all have these assumptions about fall. Like I, I want to wrap up in sweaters and sweat out and sweat while I have my pumpkin spice latte, you know? Of course, because you're a basic bitch, Scott. I'm such a basic bitch. <laughs> yeah, basic. I always think of uh, The Good Place. I you know. know. What? Yeah, basic. That's my favorite, favorite little snippet right yeah. there. But you're so, right. I mean, it's it, this time of the season brings up lots of things for different people. And, you know, we already covered sports crimes because now it's like full on football season. Right. And, which, you know, the Dodgers won the World Series. And if you guys remember, I think it was on a get vocal that we talked about. Like, I have a pact with my brother that uh, if the Dodgers win the World Series, we have to get Dodgers tattoos. So guess what? Oh, my gosh. Is it going to be the same? Yeah. Are you going to use the same guy that you use that has that style that you like? What's that called? Yes. American traditional. Yeah. Because I think I have one spot left on my upper leg and I guess it's meant to be. So I have to design it and uh, own up to my bet 
Well, not oh. that packed. So, um, yeah, so that will be happening. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, yeah, I, um, we're, we're sort of in the season of football, but also stressors of the holiday season. And you and I were kind of torn between the, the, the psychology and sometimes criminality of politicians because of election season. Right. And what we should talk about for mid-November. Yeah, because right now it, it's our country, and I think the world is kind of sitting around. I don't know if the world is necessarily worried about it, or they're just sort of chomping on popcorn and watching the shit oh, yeah. show unfold. As it has it. been for four years, but you know we're we've got a highly polarized U.S. election, and it's I'm sure it's actually going to link to some of the previous episodes we've had about conspiracy theories. There's going to be a lot that develops over the next couple of months. So everybody batten down, put on your seatbelts and get ready for the ride. Um, But we thought this would be a great opportunity to look at what do we actually know about the personalities of the people that go into politics? I mean, and maybe like, and you know, the other episode that we thought about, like for the holiday season, because Thanksgiving is an American holiday and it's traditionally one of the times when families really do come together. Um, and, you know, holiday stressors and family reunion stressors, those kind of things that there's a lot of criminality and things that happen around yes. that. But it seems like and maybe we'll be able to crank that out before the end of the month. I don't know. Yeah, I, wanna, I, I think we'll that get that out. Us. We'll get that out somewhere somehow, because I think yeah, that's somebody, a really interesting topic. See if we can find some turkey stuffing and cranberry sauce related crimes <laughs> to discuss. But in the meantime, this is another one like how much research has been done on this. And it looks like you found some really cool research on this subject. Yeah, I found a pretty good study. I I think it's interesting. I, you know, I kind of pose the question to our audience, what do you think the psychology of a politician is or the personality of somebody who goes into politics? And and that's what we're kind of talking about here today. Of course, we are going to have that lead into talking about a couple cases of politicians actually accused of some manner of homicide. But you think at least, okay, at least I am going to take ownership of this. I think of somebody going into politics, really wanting to make a difference, really, you know, having this allegiance sort of to public service and it's starting good and coming from a good place, but also like this healthy amount of ego. You know, I think everyone kind of has in their head like, well, you got to have some ego behind it to actually get out there and do it. So I I just pose that question to our audience. Like, what do you think a personality trait is of somebody who goes into politics? And you and I were able to to actually find some studies that that looked at that. What are some things that you think of, Scott, like off the top of your head before you sort of dove into this? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have a lot of admiration for, um, for people who can tolerate politics. I, I tend to be a person, you know, part of becoming a psychologist or or trying aspiring to be a responsible mental health clinician and aspiring to be a responsible researcher means that you have to check your own cognitive bias constantly. And in order to have insight into your own processes and check yourself and your cognitive biases, you have to move away from concrete black and white thinking. You have to understand that um, 
my idealism is is a reflection of the way that I was raised. And perhaps even, you know, in, for me personally, idealism is probably like a pretty well-constructed defense mechanism given the the environment that I grew up in. And it doesn't necessarily reflect the nature, doesn't reflect accurately the majority of of human experience or human nature because politics themselves are very messy. And, you know, it's it's sort of like, that experience where a lot of people, there's a lot of written about this online, about going into higher education. Like if you're going for a master's or a doctorate, you really tend to go into that expecting this higher level of functioning and thinking and self-awareness. And it's really shocking to get there and find out that really a good percentage of your classmates are are n- not capable of that not even right they're just not capable of it and then that sort of leads to another thing of realizing that there are some people who feign ignorance because it suits their cognitive bias and there's also people that really just aren't capable of it and we have people i think that are di- idealistic and go into politics And I have great admiration for people across the political spectrum, even for some people who have some very different political beliefs as I do, I can admire them for their intelligence and I can understand and I can see their desire for a better world. And I think that's really admirable. And if we can find a place in the middle to talk, I think that's a great thing. But politics, as well as pulling people who want to make change for the positive in the world, there are just as many that are driven by other darker drives, right. I believe. Right. Yeah. So that that's sort of, um, you know, maybe the two motivators for people going into it. I think there's also, you know, there's a certain personality type that you would have to be to be able to put up with all the bullshit that comes with it. You know, so when, when I started asking this question to myself, I was thinking, well, gosh, these people actually should be, not that they have to be, but should be pretty resilient people, pretty thick skinned, you know, have some good coping mechanisms, a good social support system, because think of all, you're just being criticized all day long. Yeah. Go, go on the Yahoo comment section or go on any kind of social media comment section. And you can see not only completely dumbass responses, but sometimes you can see even horrific things like, Mm -hmm. you know, just verging on the edge of death threats or making comments about, you know, like why in this day and age are we ever making comments about someone's appearance in terms of objectification, right? You know, it just there's Insane. no reason for it. Yeah. So not not only do you have to hear or see that, but in some cases you might even have to address it. You might have to rebut it. You might have to, it, you know, and publicly, all of this is happening publicly. So you know that that's sort of what I think about, like what they have to be made up of personality wise. But then I also think like once they get into it. Does it then shape them? What what does how does politics shape or change a person? And that's also really interesting to think about too. Almost like you know, I, I'm having this like parallel thought right now of like cult leaders. Do some 
quote unquote cult leaders get into it for the right reasons and then get greedy or can manipulate people and see that they have that power and then it goes like all bad. So it's it's like how does how does it start is always the interesting piece to me. And I I I default to, you know, there's probably some good genuine intention there at the beginning for most. I do, for most. I think for the for the majority there are. And I unfortunately those unless their voice is strong enough and smart enough and on the button of what is actually happening, which is a rare combination. I think of AOC um, who is amazing. I don't necessarily agree with everything that she says, but I think that she is absolutely brilliant. And I think she's going to do amazing things. I think Brian Sims is one, you know, there's just several politicians up and coming that are really like, these amazing voices and that seem to radiate sort of uh, not necessarily like a culty true believer vibe, but the fact that like, Hey, we're speaking the truth. We're just going to be plain spoken. Katie Porter is another one like Mm -hmm. Katie Porter. I just want to sit and listen to her take people to town on C-SPAN all day because that (laughs) woman, like she handles toddlers. I love that. She says, I don't, you know, handling these politicians is easy. I have toddlers. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that's, that's a really great response. But also in, in media uh, to this subject, there are some really great movies, some older movies, some classic movies. There's a Jimmy Stewart movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, that is really about this, about someone that is very smart and idealistic and wants to make a change in the world. And he comes up against the harsh reality yeah. of what it is in Washington, especially at that time, which it was nothing but old white men. Sure. You know, like pushing against that system. And there's several other ones that we'll talk about at the end that represent how your work environment can change you. We all know that. Everybody knows that your work environment can change you. For those of us that are on the front lines of healthcare, like some of our listeners, Esther, we love you. <laughs> Wonderful nurse. You know, the stressors, I'm sure that that they could talk about how the most stressful and challenging parts of their work on a daily basis can change who they are. Yeah. Sometimes and like sometimes it can build your resilience and sometimes it can wear you down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and so that yeah, that's what I'm thinking about, like constantly keeping on top of the way in which you cope to to make sure you continue to be a resilient person. Um and and when we get into our criminal cases today, we will talk about ways in which male politicians have chosen to cope that aren't necessarily um the most healthy are beneficial in the long run and has gotten them into trouble. Um, But I also think, you know, I think about the ego and I think what people always come up with is narcissism. And, you know, do you think a healthy dose of narcissism should exist for politicians or that there is a prevalence of NPD out there? I don't know about the prevalence, but I completely agree with you that a healthy dose of narcissism is going to have to be necessary for any kind of success. And I, I mean, I, I wish like, you know, they, you know, the term microdosing they use like right now for using hallucinogens for the treatment of depression and anxiety, which has a lot of focus on it right now. If there was a way to bottle narcissism, and 
microdose narcissism at the right times because i think about like what politicians have to put up with i mean it's it's akin because they are celebrities in their own way and i it's funny there's an old saying that that paul Begala, who's a pundit a really really brilliant um, political writer and he says that politics is show business for ugly people Oh my goodness. So I've never I mean, heard that. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, I think it is. There's a, there's certainly like sort of a carnival barker part uh-huh. of it. And I think the ones that, that bray the loudest in that arena are probably not the smartest, but the, but it does take this level of how much crap can you take from literally millions of people that may hold, you know, political views different from yours. And right. the higher you rise up on either side, the more you become a target of that public. And so that's got to affect sure. you as well, right? Sure, sure. I mean, I would think it's probably, forget narcissism, it'd probably good to be good to have a little bit of, uh, you know, psych- yeah, psychopathy <laughs> flavors in there. So you don't give a shit what people are saying or thinking and you're kind of focused on your agenda. But then, you know, well, the flip side to that is you don't give a shit and well, you're but, just going out for your own agenda. No, but you've got a great point. And I think that the healthy version of not giving a shit is realizing I don't have any power to do anything about that. Yeah. Like, which is a great personal boundary to understand about yourself and about the world around you is like, what what can you affect? What do you have agency and volition to change? And what do you not? And then you then it's incumbent upon you to like, well, this is what I came here to do. I got elected or I came here to do this. These are my responsibilities and I can't make everybody happy. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. So you found some stuff from Brainscape? Oh, Brainscape. Thank you. So you were asking earlier about the qualities and I kind of, before I even started researching, I was taking notes down because I wanted to ask this question of like, what does it take to be a politician and what do we know about what's found in politician? What is there anything on what makes a good politician and brainscape really great gave a great kind of breakdown of six qualities. And one is confidence, which makes complete sense. Confidence is a quality that, you know, can be described physically in so many different ways across a spectrum of people and confident, but it's, it's sort of this ineffable quality of walking into a room and not necessarily owning the room, but owning your space within the room. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are confident without anything to back it up. Like, you know, there's people that are confident that are just idiots. And I've, we run into those a lot. That's very interesting. Or confidence men, right? Confidence men, exactly. But then there's also charm and charm is another quality that either you got it or you don't. And a lot of charm for me as an observer, I think arises out of people knowing just the amount of confidence of where they stand in the room in a group of people. And the amount of self-deprecation or humor that yes. they bring to that confidence. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought I thought you were going to say what charm is to me and you were going to talk about how charming you were right now. <laughs> but no, you're right. I, I went to a training recently and it was it was actually all about Black American history. And it was specifically for like command staff and law enforcement. And the way that I described our two presenters, and they're from um, George Washington University in DC, is that they were just so charming that I think 
everyone had buy-in from the first second that they started to just be so open to the material that they were presenting, even though we knew it was all in a day and age where people could go in there a little defensive. Intentions are high, yeah. Right, feeling like, oh, you know, we're, we're in this training because of this awful incident with George Floyd that happened and we're all the way across the country. But they... I, I totally, I just described them over and over again as charming because they were just, the humor that came with it, the way in which they were just, just so genuine with the crowd, but still had some, the, the training was amazing. It was only two hours. I could have sat there for 40 hours, but it was great. But I think charm and confidence, those two that you've already named, that's what draws us to people. And that's, as a politician, you know, that's what you, you need to like draw people in. Otherwise you could just have your, your agenda and your views on a piece of paper. I think it's also, yeah. And I would say it's important to, to relate this back to our cult episode too, because I think every cult leader to some extent starts out as charming. It's one of the things that Jim Jones, if you watch the documentaries and read the research about Jim Jones, when he started out as a, uh, a lay preacher in, I think, the Oakland area or San Francisco area. Everybody talks about how charming he was. And just like when he looked at you, you really felt like he cared and that he was interested in you. And, you know, so it's, okay. it's interesting. Like, did he start, what, what happened at what point where he started believing his own, his own publicity, I guess. Yeah. But then, so those are the first two, confidence and charms. The next one, which is so important as well, is relatable. You know, you've got to find some way to be relatable. And now this is a, an interesting point to make, but like, look, the majority, and it's, I don't agree with this. I think it's, it's in terrible that this is the way, excuse me. I think that this is a terrible manifestation within our political system, but the majority of our elected officials are incredibly rich. Like they're literally, the majority of them are millionaires because it takes money to get yourself set up. So how can the majority of our country relate to that? And so these people have to put on a persona to prove how relatable they are. And what's interesting, I mean, sort of talking about um, our current sitting uh, president John Mulaney, the comedian, said something really apt about him years ago before he was elected. He said that Trump is the poor man's idea of what a rich man is. Yes, like like almost a like a, a cartoon character. Yeah. Yeah. So and but you know, that being said, Trump found a way to be relatable. His I think his relatable ness came from division as opposed to other people that sort of are trying to make messages of unity. Um, but that's, I'm not also not saying that every politician that has a message of unity is actually uh, authentic about it. Some of them are absolutely not authentic and they don't practice what they preach, but yeah. being relatable is something that certainly sells well. And in order to be relatable, you have to be willing to go to where the blue collar workers are and where the mm-hmm. majority of people that make, middle or low income in our country. And sometimes some of our most dynamic politicians won't do that and to their own detriment and to the detriment of the country as well. Sure. 
Sure. So even if, you know, say they're millionaires, they may not be relatable in terms of like lifestyle or their day-to-day life. But if they do something like start talking like them or verbalizing an ideology that might be relatable, that could be clearly that could be enough. Right. So it's the idea of, I think, who was it that there's a politician that did really well right now in the Midwest, and I'm blanking on his name, but because, and he was running against an incumbent, but he did really well because he was able to actually know what the costs of living were and what the wages were for blue collar and manual laborers. And whereas the guy that had been sitting in that position for years had not a clue. And I think that that's, that's really represented very well in an episode of um, uh, arrested development in the earlier seasons where Lucille Bluth, who's this rich matriarch completely disconnected from the real world. And they're talking about this frozen banana stand that the family has owned at the beach for years. And like Michael is trying to tell her about the money and the budging. And she's like, Michael, how much could a banana cost? $10. (laughs) She's just like this completely clueless individual about what a banana actually costs. That's hilarious. (laughs) So we've, so far we've got confidence, charm, relatability. There's also goal oriented. So orientation towards goal and volition and being able to carry a, a direct and linear narrative of what your platform is, is going to be absolutely integral to any successful uh, politician. And what helps it is that if you don't have it necessarily for yourself, because I think we do have some people that are very high up in politics right now that clearly have symptoms of ADHD that I can see, but they can be surrounded by people that can keep them on task. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because the creativity and the spontaneity of that ADHD or whatever else is going on for them may very well work for them in the long run. The one that I was surprised by that they talk about is uncomplicated. Hmm. Because in this, you know, the way it's defined in that article is not clear to me. (laughs) I'll post it for everyone to read because I think it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, because, or maybe I'm um, not necessarily biased, but I'm challenged by the fact that we continue to elect people that are incredibly complicated. As if they're not complicated. We, we're right. electing people with crazy ass backgrounds and, and backgrounds that don't support the positions that they're running for. So I'm not really sure there. Maybe we can look into it. We can discuss it on the Get Vocal afterwards. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, then, I wonder if it's also about like their messaging, like the more just streamlined and uncomplicated that the messaging is, the more people understand that. And then maybe it it's relatability because I, I would like to know right. like personality wise, how do you say someone's uncomplicated? Like how much baggage they're bringing? Like, well, you know what, then thank you for that. Cause I think that's how I was. Uh, I think you're actually correct. I was, I was interpreting that a different way. So yeah, I think, I think you're probably spot on. I'll read more on it then, but like the messaging is mm-hmm. just uncomplicated, which it's one of the reasons I love Elizabeth Warren so much. And I hope she ends up, you know, having a great position in the next administration because damn, the woman's got a, a working mapped out plan for literally everything. Yeah. You know, just yeah. amazing stuff. Um, and then the last one, of course, is fearlessness, which I think is absolutely, I mean, it's almost 
akin to the first point, which is confidence. You know, you have to mm-hmm. be fearless. You have to be able to go in there knowing that people are going to hate you and that people are actually going to want you dead, especially yeah. in the divisive times we live right now. People are are fine to post on social media how how much they hate another candidate and how much they wish sure. they were he was dead, which I think is such a an odd position to take. Yeah, no kidding. So you know, what I found also in other articles is looking at who goes into politics. And one of the things that certainly is driving people, which, you know, and this this educated me because I just thought it was like, well, it's people who want to either become a celebrity in their own right, or they want to advocate for change that they believe in, whether or not, whether or not I believe in that change, they want to advocate for change. So um, who goes into politics? It's generally boils down to people who have aspiration and advocacy towards change. They really, or they're um, invested in influencing the course of the government and governance. And it's one of the things that is sort of integral to our party system right now is that when we look at generally the people that are described on the right as conservatives want to change less except for reducing the amount of government, like reducing it. One politician is famous for saying he wanted government so small that you could drown it in the bathtub, which I think Mm. is a very bizarre image to use and not as humorous as he probably thought that it was Uh, coming off as. Um, Versus on the other side, people that want a lot of government and uh, you know, so anyway, once again, it's about these, you know, where you fall on that spectrum. Um, there are other people that clearly are driven just by making a career. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I have worked with people uh, in private practice that I think I just want a career in politics. And they, <laughs> I would say, well, tell me about what you want to do that. Oh, I just think I'd be really good at it. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, and then there's also people, some people are really, really motivated by the thrill of competition. Yes, so there are. The th- you know, I, that's interesting because I'm not competitive in that way. So that to me is, what do you think about that? Um, I, I think those people definitely exist. And I think there's a lot of different ways in which they can uh, sort of live that out. And politics totally makes sense. I mean, it's, it is one big competition. And it's not one where you have to be athletic. So, you know, just about anybody can throw together some sort of campaign. And I think there's definitely a risk-taking component to it. There's um, probably a rush that comes with it in sort of the buildup, especially. I mean, just think about like how it feels to be a citizen with a buildup to an election. You know, we were on pins and needles for days. But if you're the person that's in the middle of that, I was kind of thinking like, God, how is this for the candidates that this is being drug out? But that can be a a thrill. That can be something that really is where they find pleasure in life. Right. It's another way to do it. Right. Fulfillment. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So reiterating what I said earlier is like of the 534 members of Congress, 268 have become millionaires. And the six wealthiest counties in the U.S. are all contiguous around Washington, D.C. Whoa. Interesting. That's a problem. That's really a problem. 
pretty stark. Yeah. But um, now the flip side is who doesn't go into politics. And unfortunately, it's the very people that need the most representation, which is working class people. Mm -hmm. And part of it is that there's no real clear pathway for them to do that. And it's not about, you know, there are just as many intelligent, smart, creative, and driven working class people. But how, if you're waking a working class wage, how do you start a campaign? I mean, that's a really big challenge. So workers make just as good of politicians when they are given the opportunity to represent. Mm -hmm. And uh, like we said, the major barrier is drumming up uh, funds for campaigning. Because where do those funds come from? The funds come from corporations or they come, you know, sometimes you can get it from grassroots organization, but even grassroots funding takes an incredible foundation to get started. It's not yeah. like it can just happen overnight. I mean, even I know some people who are running for like the local school board in my area and was supportive of them. And I, I was thinking of that, you know, um, getting the materials to just go have door hangers or flyers or just like logistics of putting together a lot of that. And some people are able to run really nice campaigns at the most small local level, but they're probably out a few thousand dollars and not everybody can do that. Exactly. And as you were saying that, it made me think when you hear about people's pasts, like if they're writing a bio somebody, what they would describe as Miss So-and-so, who had a failed campaign running for school board in Loma Linda in 1992. It's like, well, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, come on. <laughs> you know, like, how, how should that True. be? A, what is a failed campaign? Like, she right. ran, you know, yeah. or he yeah. ran. Yeah, that's really interesting, huh? Um, so... I was so happy to be able to find um, a study just about personality when it comes to politicians who are already sort of at their peak um, and studying them, um, using them as guinea pigs for once. No. Um, but in 2017, Christian Jarrett did a study where he was able to get 278 state legislators to participate in this study in which he gave them a personality test. And he gave them the the big five personality test, which is basically, you know, one of the most well-researched, uh, backed personality tests, fairly simple compared to other ones. And it, it's really looking at five dimensions that tell us about a cluster of personality traits for individuals. And these these personality traits, like most personality traits, are really very stable at the individual level. So meaning like if you test someone when they're 20 years old and then you test them again when they're 30, the results are going to be pretty similar even as people age. So what he did is he he looked at these legislators and then compared them against just kind of a general population uh, sample as well. So there's there's five, like I said, five dimensions. There's conscientiousness, which is being organized, being thorough, plan, being a planner. Um, there's also agreeableness. So being sympathetic, being a kind individual, maybe even affectionate in person. Extroversion is on there as well. So think about your talkative, energetic, assertive individual. 
as well as openness. So having a wide amount of interests, being fairly imaginable and insightful and willing to entertain new ideas, and then neuroticism. So kind of that anxious, tense, moody piece of us, that's one of the scales as well. So it was interesting that he found that when he compared the politician scores to the public, the politician scored higher than the public on conscientiousness, agreeableness, and extroversion. So it's, this makes sense. I mean, all of this, none of this was like a surprise or anything, but, you know, they're self-reporting on, they're also self-reporting on their view of themselves, right? Correct. Correct. Um, So with the conscientiousness, you know, this, this, he sort of interpreted that as like, they, they're, they're hardworking. They're paying attention to detail. You have to be organized and thorough at least to get to this point. Um, the agree- agreeableness, you know, to be able to deal with a steady streak of people that are constantly wanting to talk to you, constantly wanting you to hear them, to help them. You know, that's something you have to be open to. You have to be sympathetic and at least listen and engage with people. Most politicians. <laughs> um, and then the extroversion. I mean, obviously, like you're out there, you're on stage, you're, you, you have to work the crowd. Um, but he found that the politicians on average scored lower than the public on the last two. Openness. So that's the having, you know, a wide variety of interests, which, you know, he says like a life of committee hearings and debates might actually put people off that have more artistic tendencies, which is what the openness dimension, that's the, that's the type of people that normally fall into this category. So it's like, okay, I have to be open to entertain people's ideas, but then I got to like hone in on the issues. And if I want to go, you know, have some creative project on the side, you're probably not going to have time for that, nor maybe you're just born without that interest. And so openness is going to be lower. Um, However, there is also the hypothesis that the average American prefers politicians who are a bit more on the conservative side and traditional side. So if you're conservative and traditional, you're going to be less open to experience. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, I mean, it's, I think actually that that could, could be pulled apart even further too, because it's about Mm -hmm. what, when you're, what does that mean that there is a preference towards someone who's conservative and traditional? It means, I mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of jump off on this and say that I think that that is less threatening to someone's understanding. Like, Oh, this is something I can understand, but that's not always going to be best because if you're not open to new ideas, then you're not, you're not progressing and evolving in your. I agree. Uh, anyway, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I no, I agree, and and I think you know I sort of interpreted this one as like we want to hold our politicians to a higher standard. So whatever the more traditional view of that is, maybe that speaks to people. So I don't know. Interesting. This is 2017. This is fairly recent. You know, I love the study to be replicated with kind of the the younger, more progressive um, faces that have been in there recently. 
Um, but the, the politicians were also scored lower than the population on uh, neuroticism. So basically, they're not going to freak out over every little decision or setback, which is good, right? You need it to is good. And I think, it, but it's also a source of, of frustration right. for people as well, because in a way, you want them to have the same investment that you have, right? Because a person, you know, a, a guy in Appalachia who ha- comes from six generations of coal miners, like that is important to him. I mean, it's, it's, it's of ultimate importance and he may not understand, he may not really understand like, Hey dude, that, that industry is going away. Right. So, but his, who, the person who's representing him can't necessarily be so pulled into that one particular issue that they're not seeing the bigger picture down the road, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I will put a link to the big five personality test in our show notes because it's very simple. Um, I also found a website last night where you can sort of guess where you will be on each of these and then take the test and see. And I was, I was pretty spot on. I was high on all of them, except for neuroticism. I was really, really low. So I would be through, I'll be through the roof (laughs) on that one. I will be, I will be on the needs to be medicated. Into that spectrum. Mur, mur, like a red light starts going <laughs> <Really>? off. <laughs> Mine was so low. Like I was like, okay, well, I'll be under the 50th percentile. I I don't freak out over much at all. And I was really low. Like on a score to of one to a hundred, I had like my score was like eleven. <laughs> wow. I know. I thought it was gonna be like a 30 or something, but Anyway, so yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. It's kind of fun. I think um, most people will be probably, you know, yourself on these, like you'll be spot on. on a lot. Yeah, but it's still interesting to look at it and see, you know, even the questions I think are very thought provoking. You know, you really have to think about like, there's just not that there's some very interesting questions there. Yes. And it, it's not like a, you know, 700 question MMPI test or anything. <laughs> It'll right. take you literally five minutes to fill out. So, so that, I think that kind of sums it up. Like as far, I I think people have a good idea in their head of what the person who goes into politics is like. So now, yeah, we're going to give you some examples that are definitely outliers and that also have an intersection with criminality. So yeah, that's going to be very interesting ever, you know, after we've laid the groundwork for what works and what doesn't work in the creation of the ultimate politician. Sure. And of course, we're, we always have cases to highlight primarily behavior because it's not like we're trying to diagnose any of these individuals or really, you know, make too many determinations about their psychological makeup, which is why we do the whole front end of what is generally there. But I, I think these are outliers. So I think we gave a really good background to the personality makeup for the majority of politicians. And now we're going to talk about some criminal cases, which we always talk about mainly to highlight behavior because we don't have a ton of information or reliable information on the personality makeup of specific cases. But hopefully we laid a good foundation and can get into you know some of these more notorious cases that are really interesting and there's a lot of overlap between the two that we're gonna talk about today oh, which yeah. is weird i didn't realize till 
until sort of the end. But I'm going to start out with talking about the Chandra Levy case, which happened. It's, it spans a, a crazy amount of time, which I also didn't realize. But it, it started in 2001 when Chandra Levy, who was a 24-year-old intern with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, went missing in Washington, D.C. And the Federal Bureau of Prisons, if someone gets charged and convicted of a federal crime, they go to prison in this system. It's not like they go to their local state prison. So the the federal government runs pretrial services on the front end. Of course, there's the federal courts, and then they get convicted and go to federal prison. And after that, they would be supervised by federal probation officers. So there's a whole federal criminal justice system. And she was interning for them. Um, She was originally from Modesto, California, which also is infamous for being Lacey Peterson's hometown. Um, But Chandra was quite remarkable and quite a driven young lady. She had a BA in journalism. She was earning her master's in public administration from USC at the time that she was in her internship. I think it's super interesting, kind of this this fun fact that I came across that when she was working with the Federal Bureau of Prisons, she was responsible for handling a lot of the media inquiries that were coming in for the upcoming execution of Timothy McVeigh, who was the domestic terrorist who blew up the Oklahoma City building. I, I just, what a responsibility, what a, what an amount of um, experience yeah. to handle that as an intern. Very cool. So in May 2001, her parents, who were out here in California, Modesto, had not heard from her in a few days, like five days. And that was quite unusual. She was very close to her parents. Um, and so they notified police in D.C., Metropolitan um, Police Department out there. And the police were able to search her apartment and they found all of her belongings, except for her keys. The only thing that was not there were her keys. Um, All of her belongings were there, her purse, her ID, and a partially packed suitcase and her laptop. So during the search, a detective who was not a forensic technician sits down at her laptop to start playing around with it to see what he can find and ends up corrupting the entire thing. (laughs) So not helpful when you're looking for a missing person because laptop has so much information. Also just inexcusable as well. Completely inexcusable. That's like, that's breaking the law of every, I mean, not the law. It's breaking the rules of all crime scene investigation. Yeah. I mean, Usually, especially with a, um, like a desktop, they always say just unplug and take as is like that's That's the rule of thumb with the laptop. It would be like, do not turn it on, get it to the lab. And that can be looked through pretty quickly by somebody who has that experience. Um, I know when there's a missing person and I'm sure they were like, oh shit, this is pretty high profile. She's an intern here in DC. You know, they, I'm sure they had good intentions. <laughs> I'm not trying to say they didn't, but it was it was pretty hindering to the investigation because it took a while for them to be able to get information off of there. Um, but in the meantime, her parents were also sort of doing their own investigation from home and were able to get Chandra's phone records. 
and realized that there was multiple phone calls back and forth to this number that they didn't, you know, they didn't really recognize, but um, they are able to determine that it comes back to California Congressman Gary Condit. So they provide this information to police. Her father says, you know, she never said anything to us, and this is kind of unusual. Do you think maybe they had some sort of relationship going on? And then Chandra's aunt comes forward and actually says that she was a confidant of Chandra's, and Chandra said, yes, I'm having an intimate relationship with Congressman Condit. So... That soon, very soon, actually gets leaked to the media and the press. And I mean, it's on after that. I mean, do you, do you remember like kind of the, the the media storm about all of this? It was insane. It was absolutely insane. It was all over the news. It was the same, like even to the point where it was the same pictures over and over. Like they yes. had gotten a hand a hand on handle on um, a couple of photos of the two of them together and just over and over again. And I mean, it was very tabloidy. It like, very much was. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I, I was younger than Chandra at this time, but you know, I was going, I was graduating from college and thinking about like my future in, in law enforcement and internships and you know, I really related to her because I thought like how cool she leaves California to go do this really like high profile, cool internship and, you know, maybe finds this mentor um, in this congressman, but also, you know, it turns into this salacious affair, which, you know, on her part, like, hey, she's a single girl doing her thing. <laughs> He's on his part. It's the one that doesn't look so good. But I just, I just remember her being very relatable because she had been like a police explorer when she was younger, and um, it, it, we had sort of a similar interest and trajectory. But it was just like nonstop in the media. There was, yeah, that one picture of like him, kind of like awkwardly with his arm around her shoulder, very benign. Like you right. know, he would probably take a picture with every intern. Um, but she was not his intern. Like, I want to clarify that they happened to meet and then he was from her, he represented her state. So I think that was kind of the initial connection and what he would say, like, oh, she was from my state. And so when we met, like, yes, we, we had a, a little bit of a, a thing in common. Um, so back to the computer, it did, it took about a month before the forensic techs were able to reconstruct her computer. Um, and so they found that in the day that she went missing, there were searches for uh, this area called Rock Creek Park, which is right smack dab in the middle of Washington, D.C. I think it's, I don't know if it's a national park, but it's affiliated with the National Park Service, probably because it's in D.C. just by default. But it's a very woodsy park, um, a creek rocky, just like the name says, um, trails where people would hike and walk. And, but, you know, a lot of wooded areas where it could be really thick. And um, it is, yeah, I was just looking it up. It's an urban park, it but it is administered by the National Park Services. Okay, gotcha. Um, so, so Metro PD does 
you know, an initial sort of limited search of the park. I don't know what that means. You know, maybe they went along the common trails. It makes sense that if the only thing she took were her keys, that she would have gone through for a jog or a walk in the park. Um, But what's really interesting is she also looked up like a, there was like an old mansion or house that sat in the park on the property. And she specifically looked that up. Now, for me, I would be like, oh, that's an interesting thing to go check out. It was also speculated, like, was that a meeting place, like to meet up with somebody? And supposedly, it came out later that whenever she would meet up with Gary Condon, um, he would tell her not to bring her ID with him or with her. So that if they were ever like found out or stopped or something like that, like she, I don't know, like she was just sort of, it was super like shady on the down low, <laughs> Washington yeah, DC I mean, let's, sneakery. Let's, a, it, so let's highlight that for when we wrap up this up. I mean, when we come back to talking about him, it's like, that's a really shady directive to make. It, I think it's just so kind of gross about like it's power creepy. and how you could it's tell absolutely someone creepy. not to do that. It like, at that point, like, I don't care who you are. You're going to feel a little less than like, okay, I can't even bring my ID to protect you if we get right. caught. Come on. Right. What am I going to... Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's just... That's really interesting just about like the searches that were on her computer. Um, and, you know, the, the case is still has like a ton of attention from the media, especially the American news media. Um and there is some investigation into Condon, but he was not very cooperative. So he refused to submit a polygraph test um, administered by DC police. At some point, his attorney said that they did one with a private polygraph examiner um, in which he passed, but you know, who knows? And maybe, and yes, I'm sure you can pay someone to have any results you want. But he actually had a rock-solid alibi. I mean, he was in meetings with the vice president the day that she went missing. All of that is on record. Multiple witnesses, meetings all day long. I think his wife was even in town at the time. But they did end up doing a search warrant at his condo. It didn't turn up anything of note. But prior to the search warrant happening, there was just some guy who was sitting in a park and at night. And of course, since this is all over the news, like everybody knows what Gary Condit looks like. He sees Gary Condit leaning over a trash can, like shoving something way down into the bottom of it. And obviously says like, that doesn't look right and ends up calling the cops. And so they go and search the trash can and they find a, a, box that had contained a watch, like a men's watch. And they actually do really great detective work, didn't really lead anywhere, but they track this box down to a store in California and to the purchaser who was a female flight attendant who said, yes, I bought this watch and I give it to him and I've been having an affair with him. So like, you know, we're starting to paint a picture of what this guy is up to in his personal life aside from what he's portraying to the public, because he was very outspoken about the whole Clinton Lewinsky scandal in the late nineties. And like, isn't that always the way, right? Whatever they're barking the loudest about. Seriously. Sometimes. It just seems like a regular pattern, especially in politics. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it happened. Certainly, obviously it happens across the spectrum of 
of, uh, you know, male behaviors in our culture and other cultures around the world as well. But it is particularly highlighted in politics because we see it over and over again. And it's particularly interesting when when the two parties go at each other about these things, when when one one party is constantly sort of framing itself as the moral party and the party right. of, that it tends to be more religious and like setting, supposedly following all of these rules and they're very quick to point fingers and then it, they end up, it happens to them. Yeah. It's, it happens to them. And over, no, oh, I'm sorry. It does not they, happen to them. <laughs> thank you very, thank you very much for Stop that. Minimizing. Instead, well, also externalizing blame instead of internalizing. No, this, you know, these are actions that you chose to take, including vilifying someone else for engaging in exactly the same behavior. Completely, and you feel so much guilt and shame over what you're doing that you're going to get up there and pretend like everybody else who's doing it is the big bad person. Right. But I think one of the things that's interesting about the case about Condit in this particular situation is just how odd he is through the whole thing. He's odd. He's got, and there was, I think there was more than one affair, right? Like was, was there more than just that flight attendant? So there was, it was indicated that he was involved with other people as well. So that seems to be a, a recurring theme of, among politicians as well. Is like this: is it that they have an overinflated sense of power? Um, is it because people are attracted to people that are in his power of position, mm-hmm. or his position of power of position, position of power? Mm-hmm. Is that attractive, or is it that is it a combination of those two dynamics coming together that create this? You know, really horrific opportunity for multiple affairs to be happening at the same time. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's healthy. all of, all of that, you know, it, and it's funny that you, in the first half today, you know, you talked about it being like a position of celebrity because that's what it mimics to me. You know, there, there is this sensation about, I mean, you even go to Washington DC and there is just a feeling like when you land, like it is buzzing. You know, people are doing important shit left and right. And, you know, it, there's there's kind of this thrill of it. And I could see that totally being the case, just like we see with, you know, celebrities or rock stars or, you know, whatever. It's sort of the magic of all of those, that combination. And I don't care what people are doing in their sex life or their romantic lives, as long as people aren't getting hurt. Right. <laughs> And, you know, and don't when, portray yourself to be something that you're not. Thank you. Yeah. You know, if everybody's exactly. being an adult and like we're being transparent and this is what I do, I have an open relationship, I engage in this and everybody, everybody is on board with it. That's one thing. But don't pretend to be this paragon of virtue. Sure. To your constituents when you're not. Yeah. Yeah. So. So towards the end, like we're getting towards like end of summer of 2001. and. He's coming up for re-election. So his attorney basically suggests like, hey, you should probably do an interview with the media. Try and get like set some stuff straight because, you know, you're denying that you had anything to do with this, which he has denied ever since. Um, And so he decides to do an interview with Connie Chung, the news anchor. And... 
like here's his opportunity to sort of set the story straight. And it was the most awkward, uncomfortable interview. She kind of comes out with very direct questions at the beginning. Like, were you having a relationship with her? Did you have anything to do with her disappearance? Did you kill her? Do you know who did? And it's like, no, no, no. It's all one word answers. And then she tries to get into the meat of it. Like, tell me about the nature of your relationship and blah, blah, blah. And he, he won't answer anything. Like, I don't even know he, why he did it. It was, it, and it made him look worse than probably we thought before he even did it. So it was, it was incredibly counterproductive. Um, and, it, you know, spoiler alert, he did not win re-election that year. But, and, and interestingly too, like uh, when we, when we talk about those qualities that we mentioned earlier, that sort of innate covert narcissistic presentation of I'm going to come on here. Like you knew what you were signing up for. Yeah. So did you just decide you were going to wing it and not give any answers? I mean, that is delusional thinking that you're going to be able to get away with doing that. It doesn't work that way. And certainly, I mean, that's, this has been how many years ago now? This is like 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly in today's government and in today's media, you're not going anywhere without some publicist or with an army of advisors that have absolutely prepared you for every single question that you're going to be asked. So even then they did versions of that. I mean, I think it's certainly probably even more now, but the idea that he just gave those kind of answers and you can actually watch it on YouTube. It's very, it's disturbing. Like it is. And somebody's dead, you know, this, this this person you supposedly cared about is dead or missing and come on. Right. Right. And there's a, a really great three part ID channel um, series on this case. And they interview Connie Chung about this experience. And she's like, you know, two things stood out to me. One was he could not get out of the room fast enough when the interview was over. He literally like got up and got hung up by his night mic that was still attached to him. Like he forgot to take it off and it like pulled him back. And he turns to her and says something to the effect of like, I thought you were going to be a nice lady. Like rather than she was just being a journalist asking questions and she's not inappropriate at all. She's like spot on trying to get answers. Well, let's, let's also be clear because there's a very, there's a very anti-journalist movement in our country today as we speak, which is bullshit because yeah. journalists do what they're supposed to do. In fact, I mean, the idea of like, there, there's a term that was coined, you know, by Sarah Palin when she was running of gotcha journalism. Right. Well, that's what journalism is supposed to be. Journalism is supposed to, you know, interviewers are supposed to hold up the truth of it and make you answer for your inconsistencies and contradictions. And it's funny because I think that America is like a toddler in this respect. Like we think that, that, that we should allow people to create these alternative realities and alternative facts. Whereas if you watch the British parliament, you know, they, freaking hold their feet to the fire i mean yeah. it is it is fascinating to watch it's like maury povich in a way <laughs> compared to Wait, our system it, you know isn't connie chung married to maury povich oh that's right <laughs> oh funny can you also say gotcha journalism in a sarah palin accent oh um <laughs> Well, no, I can say this. Well, I'm going to have to read them and get back to get back to you. <laughs> Remember that when she magazines, like, yeah. she, what do you name, read? she could not name any newspaper or magazine that she read. God bless Tina Fey. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 
Um, so there's all this intense media coverage, and then boom, what happens September 11th, 2001? We have the domestic, or I'm sorry, not domestic terrorism incident. We have the incident of uh, 9-11, and obviously all eyes are now on that. All law enforcement resources in the Washington, D.C. area are on that. And everything is redirected. Everything. Everything is redirected to that. As well as we know it. It was a a major world event. You know, it happened on U.S. soil to U.S. citizens, massive loss of life. But it was something that was an enormous sort of awakening for the rest of the world that these kind of things can happen on American soil, which had not happened. Yeah. I, I, to that. I can't think of any news story or event bigger to take away attention from something. And so essentially Chandra's case goes cold at this point. Um, but just all attention and all resources are now redirected. Um, but May, 2002, the next year, her, Skeletal remains are found in Rock Creek Park by a man walking his dog. And she, it's just essentially bones left after this time. So this mm. is, this is a year later, a full year. Um, but pretty early on, murder is presumed because of her clothing and the way that her clothing was found. So the, her, she was, the clothing that was found was, like a a shirt and some leggings and some tennis shoes. Like she had gone for a jog or a walk in the park and her shirt was inside out. So as if it had been taken off and as were the leggings and in the leggings towards the end, like where the ankle piece would be, were tied in loops. Like you could tie someone's wrists down with them. So they definitely were like, "Mm, there was some sort of assault or something that happened here. So, so definitely, you know, it was presumed that, that she met with foul play. Mm. And then it comes to light that there's a man named Ingmar Gwandik, who was already arrested for attacking women in Rock Creek Park. And a another inmate in prison with him said that he confessed to attacking Levy in prison to him. So in it takes a very, very long time. Um, I don't know if that's because of still, you know, what's going on with 9-11, as well as just not having much except for circumstantial evidence, as well as a really just like an informant's word for it. But in March 2009, the Metropolitan Police Department finally obtains a warrant to arrest Gwandik, who had been identified eight years earlier and sort of dismissed. Um, But prosecutors think they have a good enough case. And one of the the things that they have... um, Actually, one of the things that works against them later in the long run is they end up giving him a polygraph test, just as a tool, because we know he can't use this in court, but he passes it. Um, However, they used an interpreter because English was not his first language. He's Mm. from South America. He's from El Salvador. Now, this this makes things way more complex. It's way more muddy because, I mean, you and I have worked with polygraph examiners in, you know, some of the probation work that we've done. And... 
it, it it's very dependent on the examiner themselves. I right. mean, it's an art, right? You know, I'm I'm not a huge fan or proponent of uh, of polygraphs, but I will say a polygraph is only as good as its examiner. And it and, does have its utility in certain situations, just sure. not not what most people think it's good for. Right. There, that's a great way to sum it up. So using an interpreter is not best practice. I would say that that's how I'll sort of clarify that. Um, so anyway, he passes his polygraph, but still they're able to arrest him. And in 2010, they actually get a conviction for Chandra Levy's murder. I think the circumstantial evidence of him attacking two other women, their stories, you know, they're still alive. They're able to, to account their stories to prosecutors. He gets sentenced to 60 years in prison for Chandra's murder. I think some things that we can look at for him that was circumstantial, but really sounds supportive of him being the correct suspect was not only that he had attacked these other two women in the same park. And we know the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. He failed to show up for work on the day of Levy's disappearance. And then his former landlady recalls his face being all scratched up and bruised around that time. So, I mean, it really fits the scenario, you know, someone trying to fight him off. And, you know, they, they could not prove a manner of death. So, you know, that's kind of hinky because they hypothesize, okay, it could have been strangulation, but the hyoid bone was missing, which that could have been dragged off by animals in the woods. If they had had that, they would have been able to prove that. Or did he attack her and, you know, basically like left her out there? Was she like tied up and she, he left her out there to the elements, which I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing he probably killed her. But um, regardless, he gets convicted. And then in 2015, just five years ago, he was granted a new trial after a series of appeals. And in 2016, prosecutors announced that they weren't going to proceed with a case against him. They did not think they had enough for a conviction the second time around and that they would instead seek to deport him. So he lost his bid to remain in the U.S. in 2017 and was deported back to El Salvador. So Levy's case technically remains unsolved. Um, 15 years after the crime in 2016, Gary Condent decides to write a book about the situation and go on the Dr. Phil show. And it was like, okay, 15 years later, like, let's, let's hear it. And he shows up with his co-author on the book and basically says nothing again. It was like the Connie Chung interview all over again. It was crazy. It, so, that, right. That, I mean, once again, that to me, that's not necessarily an indicator of guilt, but it is an, an indicator that, you know, he's a, a an eccentric, odd, disordered individual or his behaviors yeah. are disordered because if you can't even, if you can't even, you know, amp up your ASPD to the extent that you can <laughs> fake something for an interview, right. like, or, or, or his intelligence, like, I'm not sure like what his history was between the time that he didn't get elected anymore, how he supported himself, but you know, how, if you can't answer questions like that, and I'm not the hugest fan of Dr. Phil, but come on, what would be the expectation of going on a show like that? You know, you're going to get grilled. Right. Right. I mean, or and is it just like, oh, I'm going to go and promote my book and I'm going to be able to sit there and not answer anything? That's kind of what it was like. And, you know, his whole thing throughout 
all of this was being not being forthcoming at all of the extent of his relationship with Chandra. And it, even on Dr. Phil, he said like, okay, so I, I saw her one time outside of the office. I saw her at a restaurant. Uh, you know, she came by my condo once or twice and a handful of times. Like he's all over the place. He can't even get a story straight after 15 years. Like at least just pick one and stick with it. And so Dr. Phil tries to ask him about having a sexual relationship with Chandra and he won't answer it. And then so Dr. Phil turns to his co-author and says, when we read this book, will we get the impression or the idea that there was a sexual relationship? And the co-author says, yeah. So it's like, <laughs> he doesn't want to say the words. And that's so interesting. And I would think the family would just want to know, like, just own whatever you did. Even at if this point about that. what sex with an intern. Right. Like, at this okay. point, what, is, what does that actually matter? You know, it's respect and also just inhabiting a space where you can respect that a life has been lost. Right. You know, that this was someone's daughter, this was someone's sister, niece, whatever, who was by all accounts, a really accomplished young woman with a great future ahead of her and just not like, I mean, it's interesting kind of going back. We've said this in other episodes that, you know, everybody loves a comeback, a great comeback story. And Western culture is very forgiving of people who own their shit and ask for forgiveness. Yeah. Like if he had just said, like, yeah, I misstepped. Um, I was in a position of power or I was stressed out and horny as a result. Like sex was my coping skill. There are so, there's a whole spectrum of things that could have yeah. been said. Just right. She was a remarkable, yeah, she was a remarkable woman. And, you know, I got caught up in that and, you know, sort of hiding behind this, like respect for my own family. Uh, then don't go on a television show and talk about it. Like don't, yeah, don't I mean, put yourself out there to begin with. That's incredibly disordered thinking. You know, yeah. where you're, you're expecting like some sort of delusional outcome from what your actions are going to be. That just doesn't right. make sense. And I now, don't think he had anything to do with her murder. I mean, I, I think no. Guandique had, I mean, I think they had the right guy. Everything points to it. Everything points to it. But it also, it's that's that, that, um, also that space that, you know, the legal system and attorneys inhabit where if we don't have enough evidence to absolutely take this to trial again, then mm -hmm. why waste the resources? I know. You know? I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I had, I, this is just one of those cases that I had forgot how much time it spanned and just sort of the, well, the, there's a lack of resolution, but it gets lost in everything because there's kind of like, oh yeah, I thought there was someone that got arrested for it. And then what happened again? But I'm well, glad we just, revisited this one. Yeah, there's just so much. And, and certainly my case as well is it has many parallels and comes from even earlier and is still relevant today. But let's take a break. Okay, we are back. So the case that I was going to cover following up the Chandra Levy, Gary Condit story is that very famous in American history, the story of the Chappaquiddick incident with Ted Kennedy. So for those of you that are maybe younger listeners that live outside the U.S., um, basically the, the Kennedy clan has had a very profound, rich and generational history in the American experience. Um, this is a, a family of East Coast wealth, a Catholic family. Our president, one of our most famous uh, Democratic presidents, 
was a Kennedy, JFK, Jonathan F. Kennedy, who was assassinated while in office. It was a very dark period in American history, whether or not people agreed with his politics or not. Then his brother, Bobby Kennedy, was sort of next in line to become a politician to become president. He was assassinated here in Los Angeles under what if both of these assassinations ended up uh, feeding conspiracy theories in our culture that, that last today, multiple movies have been made about them, multiple theories. And then there was a mysterious death of John F. K. Jr. Who was JFK's son, who was this really sort of a shining star in the family. Like he had taken their political legacy And I would say actually more so than any other Kennedy had created his own niche in our culture, first through publishing, and then probably eventually would have gone into politics. And he died in a freak airplane accident with his wife Mm -hmm. um, while flying out to one of their properties, um, which is just horribly tragic, horribly tragic. So uh, there's a lot of other... I mean, we could do a mini series. I mean, I, I think uh, Ken Burns should do a, a mini series on the Kennedys because it absolutely is fascinating. But one absolutely fascinating chapter in this is the story of Ted Kennedy, who was another one of the brothers. And looking back at the the story of these three sons of this Irish American politician, their father, who really kind of fits some of the behaviors and the descriptions of an overbearing and very distinctly oriented towards political career individual and wanted to live that out through his sons. And we see that in several of our political dynasties here in the U.S. But Ted Kennedy had had a checkered past. He was sort of, um, I wouldn't say the black sheep of the family, but he certainly was not in line for the political career that Bobby and um, JFK were. However, he was forging his own path and somewhere around midnight, Friday, July 18th and July 19th, 1969 on the East coast in the, on the small Island of Chappaquiddick, which was off of Martha's vineyard, a black Oldsmobile drove off the dike bridge and plunged into the water. So, Ted Kennedy was driving the Oldsmobile. He was 34 years old at the time, and he was in the car with a 28-year-old passenger named Mary Jo Kopechny. So according to some of the reports, and let me just say this, the, the information that has come up over the years has been adding to this story that changes it in loops and directions, and I don't think we'll ever actually know what happened. There are some very interesting theories that I don't think are necessarily conspiracy theories, but some very legitimate theories. But there's a lot that went on at this time. And remember, this is happening pre-cell phones, pre-internet. This is, you know, you going to a vacation island for upper crust wasps, wasps on the East Coast that, you know, there's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of driving, there's a lot of entitled white people milling about yeah. basically. No, it's it's certainly evolved the information that comes out which is fascinating, very yeah. intriguing to think about um you know a lot of this could have been kept quiet with any one of these theories that come out. Right. And probably today they would have them uh I think it would be probably buried a lot quicker and more efficiently than they did at the time. But um so 
this car, the Oldsmobile, goes off a rickety wooden bridge, one one lane wooden bridge with no guardrails, and flips over. Uh, it's reported that Kennedy had left a party on Chappaquiddick at 11.15 p.m. with Kopechny in the car. He, throughout this time, maintained that his intent was to immediately take Kopechny to a ferry landing so that she could take a ferry right only like about a thousand feet. I mean, not, not very far at all. It was yeah. fall at all, far at all. It was a swimmable distance. But take her to a ferry so that she could take the ferry to the other side, to Martha's Vineyard, to get to her hotel room because she wasn't feeling well because they had all been drinking throughout mm-hmm. the day. Right. He reports that he accidentally made a wrong turn onto a dirt road leading to a one-lane bridge. So opposite from the direction to the ferry. Literally a 90-degree turn Yeah, onto a non-paved road. And it's interesting because there's tons of documentaries that show maps and, and sort of automated recreations that are very interesting to look at. Um, he, after the car skidded off the bridge into what's called Pucha Pond, Kennedy swam free and maintained that he tried several times to rescue Kopechny from the submerged car, but he couldn't. And she, he reports that he tried over and over again to swim down and get her out of this flipped car, and he wasn't able to because the water was very uh, murky and there was a current. Yeah, and uh, this isn't like a little fishing pond. Like, when you look at the aerial view of this, I mean, it's, it's a pretty decent body of water. So, that's what's interesting, though, Shiloh, is that everybody agrees it is a substantial body of water. However, it was common for people to swim across it. So that's... At certain points, I think. Oh, okay. You know, like, where the ferry was, yes, but I think this other way, um, it was much more vast and sort of open. Okay. Thank you. Okay. I I did not get that out of the material. So thank you for pointing that out. That that makes sense because I felt like it was a more of a contradiction in reporting, but um, that explains it. So um, Kennedy swam free. He had tried to rescue her multiple times. He said that he at one point was so overwhelmed with shock and the alcohol in his system that he crawled up onto the beach and basically laid down and may or may not have taken a nap or gone into a fugue state. Passed out, whatever Passed out <laughs> something. But then the decisions he makes following that are pretty bizarre in that he says that he, uh, the first story was that he had decided that he then swam across at one of those places that he could get across, went to his hotel to shower and get cleaned up, and then went to sleep. Oh, but then the story changed again. And the story was that he went and got cleaned up. Then he went back to where his friends were staying on Chippaquiddick and talked to two of his male friends uh, to tell them what happened. They told him, you have to call the police immediately. And he instead went back and went to sleep at his hotel. Oh, so. And now this is where it all gets very convoluted because people are saying that the two individuals, and first of all, let me back up a little bit. This whole party that was going on was to, was sort of a a get together of a really impressive group of young women who had all worked together on Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign. 
Yeah. So it was once again, uh, Kopechny was admired by everyone around her. Ever by all reports, she was just an, another outstanding young woman, very driven in her work, wonderful hard worker. And this was a way of coming together and honoring the time that they worked together and honoring the death of um, of Kennedy. So, but once again, it had turned into people had been drinking a lot, and um, it was you know sort of this laid back party atmosphere, but there was a lot of alcohol that had been um, imbibed. So what happens is uh, between, let's see, an off-duty sheriff. Okay, so an off-duty sheriff at the time asserted that he saw a car matching Kennedy's, the Oldsmobile, at 1240 a.m. driving in that direction. So there was a witness on the scene and a diver recovered Kopechny's body from the car before 9 a.m. the next morning. And the accident had still not been reported to police by Kennedy. So Mm -hmm. he was told directly by his friends to go and report it. And he didn't. Right. Right. So So we have kind of a weird timeline for when this supposedly happened, like tons of hours of who knows what's happening. And they're not even the ones to report it. Like someone else reports it and they have a diver in the water because they see this car. Yeah. I mean, and in, even in the you know, trial, at daylight. Right. And in the trial later on, these, one of the individuals who was there supposedly, you know, he testified that he had directed Kennedy, you've got to report this to the police. But then he walked away and continued on his night. Oh. It's like, who, who does that? Like that's, and once again, kind of tying this back to, our theme today, all of these people are working in politics. Right. Seems like a very right. odd decision to make on everybody's part, certainly on Kennedy's part. So the disturbing thing is that when um, the accident, when the fire department and they were able to get the divers down, what they found out is that the time of death for Kopechny was actually much later than the actual accident. So it's likely that they, they theorized that the car flipped, created an air pocket, but the disoriented Kopechny did not know that she was in an upside down position. So she was in the air pocket, but fighting in the wrong direction to get out. So she might died probably of asphyxiation as opposed to any kind of violence from the car. That was what they, um, right. So she, at least she could have been alive for amount of time where she could have been rescued. Theoretically. That was one of the things they said that there was about a three hour window that she could have been rescued. Oh my God. And her face was pressed into the footwell. Her hands were gripping the back of the front seat. Like she had been trying to push her head into a pocket of air. Oh, that makes sense that the car's upside down. So the footwell is going to be up top. So she's got an air pocket. Right. And you're there. within this, you're within this enormous, I mean, in an Oldsmobile at that time, right. was such a heavy car, yeah. your sense of, you're not going to, and you're underwater, you're not going to have a sense of gravity to orient yourself as to what is up and down. And then the window, everything is murky. So you can't mm. see, and there was alcohol involved. So Gosh. it's just very, very tragic. So I, I do want to take a minute to talk about, like you had talked about Chandra, Mary Jo Kopechny was an amazing woman. She was born in New Jersey. She had volunteered for Bobby Kennedy's presidential campaign while she was in college. Um, she had gotten a business degree for her undergrad. She taught at the Catholic Mission School in Alabama. And then she worked in Florida for a senator 
uh, before getting a job in Robert Kennedy's Senate office. And during his 1968 presidential campaign, she helped write speeches, and then she continued working in politics after his assassination. Um, So, yeah, I mean, she's just a really outstanding, remarkable woman. And like the nickname for her and her other fellow women that worked on this campaign were the Boiler Room Girls, because they had just been sort of the heart and soul and the drive of Bobby Kennedy's campaign. So once again, kind of circling back to what Kennedy said, he had, he asserted that he dove repeatedly into the, I'm going to quote this into the strong and murky current to try and find her before making back, making his way back to the cottage on foot. So once again, here's a change in the story, depending on, you know, the various sources you go to about what he did immediately after that. So then he allegedly drove back to the scene with his cousin, Joseph Gargan, and um, uh, political aide, Paul Markham. And it's reported that then they all tried to save Mary Jo and were unsuccessful. All these in, stories, if you don't learn anything from today's episode, pick a story and stick and with stick it. stick with it. <laughs> right. Right. Jesus. Absolutely. So... Uh, now the story changes to the Ken or the what is added onto the story is Kennedy says that Mary Jo felt ill at the uh, party and that they were going to head back to the ferry uh, in Edgerton where they were both staying at different hotels. Um, so what's weird about this, or I don't know, I mean, it's considered odd, but maybe it's not is that she left her purse and hotel room key at the cottage where the party party was held. But you know, when there's alcohol involved and everybody's stumbling around yeah, so you're you not, might not really. Think yeah, you may it. not be thinking. I don't know if that's necessarily as big of a factor as people make it out to be. And you know, when it was all said and done, um, in the court and the charges, you know, he went to trial. They knocked the um, sentence down, and he pled guilty to a charge of leaving the scene of an accident. And then he received a two-month suspended jail sentence. So yeah. now this was cue of. The main conspiracy theory at the time was that because he was already married, he he like had to, that she was pregnant. And that's why it was all under a cloud of mystery that she was pregnant. They They said that about Chandra Levy too. (laughs) Exactly. So they were trying to, you know, that this was a murder plot by the Kennedys to take her out, which is incredibly overcomplicated. Like, why would you go to that extent? That's just not the most likely thing that happened. And um, his conduct, really, I mean, this is one of the things going back to Gary Condit and looking at Kennedy's conduct is it, he said, um, they're asking him, like, tell us, you know, what your motivation was. Like, why, why did you make the decisions you made at that time? And he would say that his conduct at the time made no sense to me at all. And he also asserted that he regarded his failure to report the crash immediately as indefensible, which I got to tell you, good for you for owning that because it absolutely is indefensible, no matter how drunk you are, unless you're so blackout drunk that you don't know what you're doing. And then if you're that blackout drunk, you're not likely to be jumping back into the water multiple times. So how did he even get out? You know, I'm, I'm surprised he survived the crash or was able to swim free himself. Well, that's interesting from a, from looking at, I mean, I have not for this one, but I've looked in the past at various sort of, uh, car fatality and car tragedy incidents. And it is crazy what happens when a car goes out of control. 
Mm-hmm. And this was before the time of seatbelts. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. Seatbelt laws were not in effect at this time. And I think that that would have a, a big effect um, if you're thinking about he's going at a high rate of speed over a single lane rickety, br- uh, rickety bridge, and then it flips as it falls off. He, if the window was open, he could have been thrown out or he could have already True. just found his way out. But this is what's really interesting is that even TMZ in 2019 said that a CIA individual reported to them that they, that they had been on this case, you know, that it had been in, continued to be investigated over decades and that most likely what happened is that Kennedy was that there was another person on the scene and the other person on the scene was a female married to a prominent senator known and verified to be at that location on Chappaquiddick at that time that Kennedy was having an affair with. Okay. I'm following you. Okay. So one and someone reported also there was another witness on the scene that witnessed the car drive by. It was a teenager who was hanging out with her friends late at night at their parents' summer cabin. And she reported that there were three people in the car as they drove by. There was a person sitting in the back. So the theory is that the boiler room girls were drinking. Mary Jo got very ill from drinking so much. This cabin was so small, there was no place for her to lay down quietly. So she went, leaving her purse and her hotel room key, went out, laid in the back seat of the Oldsmobile. Uh Uh-huh. That would make sense. To nap or to sleep it off. And then when Kennedy and his side piece, whoever it were, was, were in the car, they didn't realize until they were going at this high rate of speed. and. Kopechny woke up in the back seat or came to in the the back seat, maybe got startled or maybe they were erratically driving because of the alcohol and then flipped over. So Kennedy got out. This unknown woman got out and she's been able to keep her identity in the shadows all this time. Mm -hmm. But Kopechny was not able to get out and drown. Wow. Well, I mean, it... (laughs) That makes sense why the story was kind of bullshit that they were going to the ferry, to the hotels. I mean, what if he was just, if there's no room in this small cabin, he wants to go have sex with this woman. Let's drive out, go down this dirt road, see where it leads, go do our thing, come back. But, oh shit, there's someone in the back seat. Right, right. Wow, so interesting. It's an interesting theory. And I mean, I, I have to say, like, I'm not like I'm not the hugest fan of TMZ and, and Harvey Levin, but I will give them <laughs> grudge. I will give them grudging respect is that, you know, they're usually right. You know, they they the stories they publish that just sound so salacious are usually based in truth. Um, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if anybody's done a statistical breakdown of it, but They've been proven over and over again to actually have the scoops on things. And interesting, too, that like it's so recent, like as recent as 2019 that this comes up. Yeah. Well, there so there was a film made about this with like Kate Mara and Ed Helms just a year or two ago. Yeah. And I didn't see it. But have you seen it? I didn't. But it's supposed to be pretty good. I mean, it's supposed to be a slow burn. Like, so I I want to I saw the trailer. It looks really good. I want to know what kind of theory they go with in it. I want to watch it after this. So one of the big questions is why didn't Kennedy go to prison? 
And, you know, to circle back around to the legal process, in order to charge someone with involuntary manslaughter, the law enforcement would have to establish that that individual did something illegal like speeding or driving under the influence. So even at that time, there had to be major Kennedy spin doctors at work. So there was immediate damage control and there were a lot of legal efforts undertaken by a group of Kennedy confidants and advisors, including ex-defense secretary Robert McNamara and JFK speechwriter Ted Sorensen. So, so you, you have, have a speechwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of spin doctors spinning this how they want. I think the biggest issue is like the the period of time where evidence was lost too, right? You have you have the you can call all of your Kennedy people and get those brains start working on how they're going to cover this up or spin it. But also law enforcement's kind of left with nothing because you don't have evidence. You don't have um you can't take evidence to prove DUI at that point. You nobody was there, so you can't prove that there was like reckless driving or speeding or something that led to the death. Right. It just all they have to rest on is an accident. And yeah, so he, the best they can do is like leaving the scene of a crime. And interestingly, another parallel to what you were talking about, not necessarily at the the time of the trial, but that same weekend of the accident, the entire world was looking at a major historical moment. That was the moon landing of Apollo 11. So they lifted off from Cape Canaveral on July 16th, 1969. And then on the evening of July 20th, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin took their first steps on the moon's surface. So, wow. Wow. Talk about a distraction, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's all about how much media attention some of these incidents get, right? Like how high profile they're going to be. I mean, this was still clearly high profile. You have the remaining Kennedy brother involved in this incident. But when half, you know, the world's attention is over here it's not going to be as as massive or salacious as as if you know it was the only thing going on that weekend right and one of the the additional things too that that draws a parallel to your example is that ted kennedy was really i mean this is somebody who came you know he was sort of the black sheep the outlier from the family but he had pulled it together politically you know he had mm-hmm. been thrown, he had dropped out of law school or he failed out of law school you know, he'd had a military career and interestingly enough, has only recently died of cancer and ended up being kind of an amazing politician that set in motion many really great policies here in the U.S. Right, right. But certainly during whatever happened here was a really, a real example of horrific, uh, horrifically bad judgment, mm-hmm. including one of the other theories is that he was involved as well, like uh, like many of these politicians in a lot of affairs. You know, so there's right. once again this sort of issue of of hierarchy, power, control, being in that position, and are they using sex escapism, and or are they using sex in an escapist way, or a way to manage the stresses of being a politician? I mean, I don't. There's so many I, different ways that could go. The way but it's certainly I, bad judgment. Overall. Yeah, it, well, it is, but so we see a lot of this in law enforcement as well, and I think it is in the personality makeup. You know, it's it's having just enough of that personality makeup that wants to be adventurous and a little risky, and you know, actually, the things that we look for 
when we're doing, uh, I, I don't do pre-employment psych evaluations for cops, but I've done some research in the area. And you want a little bit of risk-taking behavior because you want that person to run towards danger, right? When no one else will. But that can translate into really having some thrill-seeking tendencies in their right. life. And one of those areas, like if you you have a person, a politician that is is willing to go out there and face this crazy life of a politician and constantly like sort of getting a high off of these, these risk-taking situations, sex is and affairs, like especially because there's like that taboo nature around it. Yeah. Um, that's why they're not coming out in the open and saying, hey, here I am. Here's what I do. The secrecy is a thrilling part of it. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. I wanted to give one more example that's even more recent um, of this same sort of uh, thrill-seeking... Bad decision-making. Bad decision-making and complete evasion in a male politician. And that is um, Mark Sanford, who was a governor in South Carolina, disappears for a week from public view. And his office officially states that he is hiking in the Appalachian Trail. And that's what he told them um, as he was leaving. I'll be gone for five days. Won't be able to get in touch with me. I'm hiking the Appalachian Trail, which is, by the way, a really lovely trail. It's like a, an amazing hike here in the Sounds U.S. Sounds great. Yeah. yeah it's fantastic. Good self-care. I'm liking it so far. Good for you. <laughs> and what's interesting is that his wife, you know, when interviewed after what I'm going to talk about in a moment happens, his wife says, oh, yeah, he, you know, he needs alone time. He needs to get away from the job and the kids. So he just disappears for days at a time like she was kind of okay with it. And it turns out he had been having an ongoing affair with an Argentinian journalist. And it was revealed that throughout his marriage, Sanford had engaged in a number of extramarital affairs. So on June 24th, um, Sanford arrived at the Hartsfield-Jackson-Atlanta International Airport on Delta Flight 110 from Buenos Aires. And he was met by a reporter who had started sniffing around and figuring out that something was going wrong. And he agreed to a brief sit-down interview, and he claimed that um, he was alone for the entire trip, didn't give any details other than he drove the coastline. So I just need some me time. So I'm just going to use my Delta miles, get me a trip to Buenos Aires and, and walk on the beach. Because you know, those American beaches just aren't nearly as relaxing. And thank you for giving us the flight number, Scott. That's very detailed research. It is very detailed. <laughs> <laughs> um, he said that, and then when she, he was pressed, you know, like, well, he had considered hiking the Appalachian Trail. But at the last minute, he saw all these points that he had and got an award ticket from Delta. And um, oh, that's then funny. he was asked... So he well, really why? did say he was using his Delta miles. Yeah, he I actually you were, did. No, no, no. I thought that was your creative... <laughs> no, it's, it's great. It, that's exactly one of the things that was said. So um, apparently at one point, his, Scott English, who was his campaign manager, um, or his chief of staff actually, had contacted him and said, you need to get home. This is a big deal. And he, once again, sort of in that conduit way, uh, he just didn't understand why it was such a big deal. Like, it, and isn't that interesting? Like, we expect our politicians to be sort of on top of what's going on and right. understand what the problems are. And here's somebody that just, just, just did not understand why it was that big of a deal. <sighs> so that um, was really, you know, it, it, it set up a great... Um, dynamic between his staff and a, a, a Republican challenger who rightly said, lies, lies, lies. That's all we get from his staff. That's all we get from his people. That's all we get from him. And, you know, she was right. He, like he just lied about it over and over again. And he said some just odd things about that. 
the reason he was in this affair was because, you know, he had met his soulmate. And, you know, even years later, he was said, yeah, I know. And I said some goofy things, but they were all true. Just like, so really, once again, like a, a bizarre and very disrespectful to his wife and the yeah. other members of his family that like, that that was, an, you know, to make a statement like that. Like, well, it's that's like the part cr- that we don't need to know. And, yeah. They're, and they're sort of like creating their own reality and then putting it out there as if we're going to accept it. Right. Like that justifies it. Well, it was my, it was my soulmate. So that's why I lied about going to the Appalachian Trail. But once again, because American public, you know, is always there to forgive somebody. He got elected two more times. He, he, they had censured him. They tried to impeach him. They were not successful in the uh, state government, but they did censure him, which here in the state censuring is sort of like a, a wagging of a finger, like you did something really bad. Mm. You know, it doesn't really South hold Carolina. a lot of weight. Yeah, it doesn't surprise yeah. me. But he um, went on to, you know, they had, they named that he had engaged in 37 violations that he generated during office. Um, he was censured, but he went back and reinvented himself as a congressman and he successfully won a seat in Congress for two terms. So just already, yeah, I mean, once again, sort of that being able to create a different reality for themselves, which I think goes back to our opening points of ego and um, sort of those doses of narcissism that in some ways will feed a politician and serve them well. And in these cases really sent them down paths that were, that were not good. Yeah. Wow. So, uh all the overlap, it, it, it really does have, you know, a regular politician who's not involved in these shenanigans, you know, I think there's probably one personality profile and then we're sort of looking into the window of the others. And right. And this is only, makeup. these are what, two examples. These are just two examples of right. hundreds that we could probably go through. Um, I wanted you to, though, you picked out a great TV representation that we should end on because i never watch this is a show that i'm gonna have to marathon at some point oh but i feel gosh, icky about so it because good. i know I, you know kevin spacey, kevin spacey kind of has fucking down. ruined it for yeah. us <laughs> no when i think of power and corruption and politics and murder i think of house of cards and it's it, it was i think it was one of the first like netflix original shows when they started streaming um so it was started in 2013. It ran for six seasons. It's basically described as like an American political thriller. Uh, I believe there was a British version first, I want to say. Never watched it. Um, but it's set in D.C. And it's the story of Congressman Frank Underwood, who's played by Kevin Spacey. And he's a Democrat from South Carolina. Um, and he's the House Majority Whip. And, it, you know... His wife is the equally ambitious Claire Underwood, who played by Robin Wright, also my like work apparel fashion icon is Claire Underwood, the character. <laughs> I try to dress like her when I go to work. Well, her the styling, her styling on the show is so great. And she's oh, a so great good. character, great actress. So great. Um, but there's just it as it is very fitting called house of cards i mean the long game of manipulation that frank underwood plays throughout the uh, most of the seasons 
is just, it's, it's really incredible. It's ingenious. It's, um, it, there, there are a lot of people that he ends up having killed off or kills off himself and, um, you know, people that you really like, but the, the characters are just so fantastic. And like, I was talking about that buzz that you feel when you go to Washington DC, like this sort of feeds off of that, just like this powerful stuff happening, but is there this underground shady stuff happening too? And this is obviously the extreme fun version of that in media. Um, But I also feel as if it's a depiction of like these two psychopaths married to each other, which is kind of cool. He and Claire. (laughs) Yeah. She's, you know, she's great as well. And I I, I do know I'm, I I have absolute utter respect for um, Kevin Spacey as an actor, but I think it's interesting that you chose this particular Example because although Kevin Spacey's not a politician, he's a why did I say a politician? He's not a politician. He's a very accomplished and and gifted actor, but he himself has had a a a best known secret kind of identity in Hollywood for years, knowing that he was gay, knowing that he was really sort of um, approaching people that he should not be approaching, including a lot of straight guys. He was notorious for approaching mm-hmm. straight guys on set, um, making them very uncomfortable. And because he was part of a very powerful machine, you know, he was able to cover it up. But interestingly enough, like after all this stuff went down with Spacey, he did this bizarre video that he posted online. Oh, that's Where right. he was in character as his character Frank from Underwood. House of Cards, as right. Frank Underwood sort of explaining that all it's it's not that big of a deal and when you find out what's really going on it was the most twisted and like so bizarre do you lack the insight to know that you're actually if you're trying to make an ironic metaphor you're actually only damning yourself further it was just very interesting to see that someone's ego at this point is so disorganized that they would think that this would be appropriate Right. And it was weird because in the series, he speaks to the audience. What is that called? Breaking the fourth wall yeah. or something like that. Okay. So he does. He turn, He like speaks the audience to the camera every once in a while. And that's what he was doing in this bit on YouTube. And like, can Netflix like sue him over that? Like, what is, <laughs> you're just thinking like all of these, this lack of insight and it was incredibly bizarre and just like really gross, like you said. Yeah, it was discomforting. I mean, really discomforting yeah. to look at something like that and go, what are you trying to say? And like, if, if, I, if I, you know, I'm a huge film and TV buff and I love actors and the work that they do and like, but I can't figure out what it is that's driving you to make this message. Like, what, what, are, what do you think you're doing? Do you think you're improving yourself? Because right. that's delusional. And who, coming back to like, Who's advising you? And are you listening to those people? Well, clearly not. Clearly <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things where Netflix would look at that and go, oh, we're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. He's going to dig himself in no. so deep. Why bother? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. This was a great, timely, fun thing to dive into. Really? Thank you. Yes. So I don't know if we'll make it back before the holidays. We might. We'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, if we don't hear from you guys or see you guys. Um, I won't go into it now, but like there is, we have, I don't even want to call them fans because like, (laughs) I I feel like our listeners are our friends because we are starting to 
see you guys on Get Vocal and we see you on Twitter. And you, you, I won't even, if anybody wants to see what's going on, go over to Twitter and look at what's been going down. Yeah, but like we have some just, we have some really great friends out there. And thank you so much <laughs> for being our friends and our supporters, our listeners and our fans. We really appreciate it. Yes. And this Saturday, the, you know, following this episode is the CrimeCon house arrest event. But if you're not attending that or watching it virtually, which is the only way in which people can attend it in air quotes, come join us on Get Vocal. Yeah, come join us. Pacific Standard Time. Or go back and forth and tell us what's going on. That'd be fun. Oh, yeah. Give us some updates on what's happening over there. (laughs) But we're your alternative free um, entertainment for Saturday for an hour. So please join us. And we'll be back with something exciting next time. And um, I guess we'll see you then. Okay. On... LA. (laughs) Not so. Confidential. Thanks, folks. Catch you next time. Bye bye. Bye.